0: quite the time this last few weeks refereeing what makes our list of the top stories. Now you get to make your case for one of your own.
1: Yep, I'm so ready. I get to make a case for uh, Lake Erie belonging at least in the top 10 for 2019. So I'm ready to go.
0: Well, clearly 2019 was not the most newsy year of the past 10, but a lot did happen. And in a sec, we'll jump off with one that is all yours. Welcome to a special episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. Why is it special? You might be asking. Well, because it's the end of the year and we're going over stories we believe are the top 10 for news value in 2019. Laura Johnston is the podcast co-host and she oversaw our project to identify the top 10 stories in every year of the last 10. And because I know she's raring to go, I'll skip the chit chat and get straight to one of the stories that Laura is all excited about. Laura, did Lake Erie set some kind of record in 2019?
1: Well, Chris, thanks for asking. In 2019, Lake Erie broke its all-time high-water mark not once, but twice, both May and June, breaking the previous record set in 1986. Water levels were nearly three feet above average, meaning that beaches disappeared, docks were submerged, Port Clinton declared a state of emergency. In Cleveland, we don't get as much erosion as a lot of spots in the Great Lakes, which is really good news for us. But elsewhere, this has been an enormous deal. Uh, To put it in perspective, Rich Exner crunched some numbers. Uh, He's very good at that. This summer, it would have taken doubling the flow of Niagara Falls for nearly three months to bring water levels back to normal. Or think of it this way. Picture the entire state of Ohio covered by a half foot of water.
0: You know, I get it's a big deal to set the all-time record. We love those. Those are big (laughs) news stories because they're so rare. But in the end, what does it mean? You know, Later this month, reporter Rich Exner is detailing how many temperature records were set in the past 10 years, and it's a lot. And that's pretty clear evidence of climate change, the big national-international debate. But what is the greater meaning of a record lake level? It's a big bathtub out there, so eventually the water does drain away. Why are you so exercised about it being so high?
1: Well, I think the high water is another sign of climate change, and the U.S. Corps of Engineers is predicting high levels for the next four years. That's a big deal, not just because boaters have a hard time climbing aboard, but because flooding is causing massive property damage, especially on the shores of Lake Ontario, which you know is the last Great Lake to get every other lake's water dumped in. There's a group called the International Joint Commission. It's in charge of controlling the flow of water out of Lake Ontario into the St. Lawrence Seaway. There's only two spots in the Great Lake they can control the flow. It makes a very small difference in lake levels, but homeowners and politicians want a lot more water flowing out so they don't have these problems. Shipping companies say no because the rates make it impossible to navigate the narrow seaway. They say they lose millions of dollars from these delays. And think of a city like Chicago. It's got its vaunted lakefront paths. We all love them. They're spending millions of dollars to protect that shoreline. And they've had waves literally sweep people into the lake off that path and drown.
0: Can you say what caused it? Is it too much rain flowing into area rivers? I I don't think it's a snow melt, as we didn't get a whole lot last winter. And if it all comes down to getting a lot of rain, do we need to worry about it happening again? Is this a rarity, or is it likely that the same causes will be back?
1: Well, it is a lot about the rain and the snow melt because it's not just based on the precipitation in the Lake Erie watershed. Think about it, it's also based on the weather around Lake Superior and Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And the Great Lakes Basin last um, just this past October capped its five wettest years ever. And you know, I don't really see that slowing down.
0: Because that's part of climate change. Well, let me ask you this. We've worried for years about the algae blooms in the lake, particularly after Toledo lost access to its drinking water because of that a few years back. Is having all that extra water in the lake good for clearing away the algae because so much water is draining out of the lake? Or does it make the algae conditions worse because so much rain is pouring into the lake and bringing runoff with it?
1: I ask the same question. Like, would more water dilute the algae? But since more water is that result of more rain, rain is what carries the phosphorus from the farm fields into the lake. Um, All the manure, all the fertilizer, and more rain generally means a more severe harmful algal bloom, especially when it's hard rain and we get more of those those big rain events rather than like a slow and steady um, mist
0: so what are the lake levels today how much of all that excess water did drain away over Niagara Falls
1: we're still high I've got a story coming up um, about the fact that we are still high but we are and we'll be high going into about um, well, For the nearest forecast, we're going to be starting 2020 with lake levels higher than we started in 2019, though the Army Corps thinks that by May, we'll have dropped down below last levels. Um, So we might not be breaking any records, but it'll still be high. However, if we get a really wet spring, we will be breaking records again.
0: Okay, so that's the first of our top 10 stories of the year. We set the all-time record for Lake Erie's water level. Let's bring in reporter Mary Kilpatrick, who worked with you to identify the rest of the stories on this list, and reporter Courtney Ostafi, who is the expert on three of them.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Mary and Courtney. Hello, hello. Hi.
0: Mary, let's talk about how you picked this news at the top of the year. That's the top stories of the year. We'll come back at the end and touch on what did not make the cut, so don't give anything away here. But tell us what your general parameters were for selecting these stories.
2: Well, they had to be big stories, right? They had to make a difference in Cleveland somehow. They had to capture the conversation. So whether or not it's Frank Jackson's grandson and the controversy surrounding that or this huge question of plastic bags and whether or not the county is going to ban them, which was a a question kind of throughout the year. And it seems like, yes, it is happening and it's happening very soon. So these are stories that really captured the conversation um, in Cleveland. It's what people are talking about. And it was also big stories that had you know, an impact in in Cleveland generally.
1: Well, one of the stories is a very easy choice for 2019, the county jail. As 2018 ended, the jail was in free fall. An inspection by the US Marshals Service had found many dozens of problems, the most alarming of which was inhumane treatment of prisoners. Courtney, you've been covering this story all year. So as we close out 2019, how are things different?
3: We've seen a lot of big changes at the jail from a year ago one of the major changes we've seen is how how much the county has brought down the inmate population the jails now around capacity for the first time in 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 many 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 years if it ever was so there's way less inmates in the jail now the county has staffed up and hired a bunch more corrections officers. So that has led to a decrease in the use of lockdowns. And that was a big problem that the marshals zeroed in on last year because it raised tensions in the jail. So those lockdowns are down. There's now a contract with Metro Health to provide medical care to all inmates in the jail. That's a big switch, and that was a big commitment from the county to bring in Metro Health. The food has has definitely improved. You know, an outside consultant came in and, and said that we've seen great improvements there. So we've seen a, a host of changes over
0: 2019. Well, and we've we only had one death compared to the seven we had last year, which is probably the biggest significant measurement. The thing that did surprise me about this was, or was it eight versus? Eight, eight, eight in versus 2018. Eight yeah. in 2018. Okay. It, it The thing that surprised me about this was how long it took to get moving that this report came out at the tail end of last year. It was horrible and bad and and raised all sorts of things that had to be fixed. And yet for pretty much the first six months of the year, you didn't see much movement. We still had the rampant lockdowns and, and the, the state inspections that came were not very, very good. The deaths did stop, which was, which was probably the most important thing. But was it Bill Mason coming in as chief of staff in the summertime that made the difference here?
3: You know, I think that was a big difference here. But Mason coming into the county, he wasn't the only one that came in with a laser focus on improving the jail. We also saw a new sheriff brought in after the former sheriff retired. We saw a new jail director. We saw a new warden. Um, they brought back the previous jail director who kind of knew how to move inmates through and get people out of jail quicker. So it's been an effort of a lot of new staff members that have helped chip away at these issues.
1: One story, I would going back and reading all these stories again, you talked a lot about money at, at a time. And so is is money not an issue right now? Are they just like addressing that? and just saying we'll worry about money later?
3: No, I mean we've seen a big investment of more funds flowing into so that's the jail what I mean, like, this rather year. Rather than worrying about cutting money, they, yeah, they, they're not
0: really worrying about the source of it. They're spending what they need. to Oh, spend. they're
3: spending way more money now than they were in in years past. In recent years past, you know, the the Metro Health contract, many millions of dollars there, m- many more millions of dollars to hire and staff up the corrections officers. So we've seen that investment now. There are things they
0: can't do, though, because of the layout of that antiquated jail. Modern jail science is much more about single-story or two-story jails that are spread out and having the guards stationed inside the prisoner areas instead of in control rooms or in hallways. And you just can't do that there because of the way it's designed. There's now a lot of talk about about building the new jail and how you would pay for that because that's a gigantically expensive public project. So what's the future here?
3: Yeah, so throughout the year, we've seen a lot of city and county leaders meeting every every month or so, and trying to guide the process of what the future jail, what the future justice center is going to look like. It's probably going to be the most expensive county project in county history. You know, many officials have said that. So it's going to be a large commitment. Things have been kind of moving in fits and starts in that process. But what this year-long process, it's intended to to give the county a plan to move forward, to say what amenities and what things do we want in the jail to make observing inmates and caring for inmates an easier process compared to that behemoth old structure that's there now. So right.
0: Mary, I imagine some of the stories on this list as you got down to the end of the list were were tough choices, not so much this one.
2: No, this is probably one of the f- if not the first story on our list. I think it probably was for 2019. And and the reason why is uh, exactly what you said. In 2018, Uh, Seven inmates died within four months. Another one died at the very tail end of the year. They weren't getting adequate medical care. The jail was horribly overcrowded, in part because the county wanted to stuff as many prisoners in there as possible because they could make more money that way. And, um, you know, the reforms that we're seeing are incredibly important. This is a story that you have to keep watching uh, because, um, you know, just because you're in jail doesn't mean you're sentenced to die.
1: Right. And, you know, Courtney has been watching this all year, and I'm sure we'll keep watching it in 2020. So let's move on. Not too far. Apart from the inspections of the jail, we've also had a criminal investigation of county government that expanded into abuse cases in the jail. That investigation of county government is another of our top 10 stories for the year because corruption is really high on our news ranking here. The Ohio Attorney General's Office raided the county of county executive raided the office of County Executive Armin Budish, seizing his cell phone and all sorts of other things. Courtney, let's leave the jail abuse out of this conversation, but how many people in the Budish administration have been charged?
3: So three current or former members of the administration were indicted at the beginning of 2019. That includes um, the Information Technology Department's lawyer, Emily McNeely. Former. Former. Uh, The former jail director, Ken Mills, and the current um, head of HR, Douglas Dykes. So for Emily McNeely, she's accused in part of steering contracts to Highland Software, where her wife worked. Several charges against her, including felonies. She's also accused of misrepresenting kind of the reputation of another company the county had contracted with. Doug Dykes, he's accused of converting um, moving expenses intended for a high-ranking IT department official into a signing bonus and prosecutors, you know, say that that's not in line with county law and that that was improper. And then former jail director Ken Mills, at first, at the beginning of the year, he was accused of lying to county council and lying to investigators about his role in blocking the hiring of nurses at the jail But later in the year, in October, we saw more charges leveled against Ken Mills, accusing him of dereliction of duty and accusing him of being negligent in how he managed the jail and failing to provide adequate food, medical care, bedding and shelter to inmates there.
0: We should note that Budish, the county executive, has not been charged with anything and has not actually, I think I'm correct on this, formally been named as a target Although everything the investigators doing are doing or looking at him. I mean it has the feel of a gigantic fishing expedition that if they keep looking hard enough they'll find something. It's not it's not what they started with. I always understood the charges against McNeely. The records detail some pretty serious conflicts. I never could tell about Mills whether there's a crime there or not. There's enough smoke. But the charges against Dykes, the highest-ranking African-American in the administration, always have seemed bogus. Our editorial board from the start took shots at this because you're, you're saying because he converted that signing bonus, or the converted the moving expenses into a signing bonus, it's not appropriate. They charged him with felony theft. I mean, generally, you charge people with theft who take stuff for their personal gain. He didn't get anything, and you really have a hard time with the criminal intent. It's one of the the weirdest cases I've ever seen. We've defied them to come up with a precedent that's similar and they have not been able to because you just don't use the criminal code this way. When will these things come to trial? This has been dragging on since January.
3: Yeah and there's no necessarily there's no end date in 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 sight at least for McNeely and Mills. Those two have not received a trial date yet so we don't know when that's going to go. Dykes's
1: trial date is set for March. Okay. As part of the raid we just talked about, the Attorney General's office took all of Budish's emails. So investigators are still combing through those looking for signs of the crime, a crime, any crime? Yeah, we haven't seen
3: really any any fruits of, of that Valentine's Day search warrant that investigators executed on Budish. It's just kind of hanging out there, and we're waiting to see what happens.
0: And, and, and look, this investigation continues to blossom and get bigger. I mean, we, we, we talked about the, the abuse of the guards. Uh, we talked about the IT. The raid took every email that Armin Budish has, and I guess there's, there's still an ongoing battle about the privilege there. But eventually, prosecutors are going to read every email that guy has received or, or sent, and, and who knows what will be in there. Um, we've seen, so, how many subpoenas? I mean, is it dozens and dozens by this point, right?
3: Yeah, like I think around 20.
0: All right, Mary, we have three pretty pretty lame charges against not the highest ranking people here, but it's corruption. So why does this story make your list?
2: Because any corruption in Cuyahoga County is a big deal. If you think about our history here with the DeMora-Russo scandal, which happened just about 10 years ago, that's that's not too long ago. And any form of corruption here matters uh, to people because, you know, you don't want to see anything spiral to to what happened 10 years ago ever again. And you just, you have to watch it.
1: So far, the stories we're talking about are still developing and will be relevant next year in 2020. This next story is no different. We've talked about it quite a bit in the podcast, The Bane of the Plastic Shopping Bag. We have a county-wide ban, we have a Cleveland exemption to that ban, and now Independence, North Olmsted, and Brooklyn are exempting themselves. We have state lawmakers trying to outlaw the bans to help out grocery stores, and we have grocery stores voluntarily ridding themselves of the bags, meaning they don't really need the state's help. Courtney, let's take it piece by piece. What is the status of the countywide ban? So the countywide ban is still set to go
3: into effect in January, but responding to some of this... Pushback back against the ban. The county has agreed not to enforce the ban for the first six months of the year. So that grace period's, you know, the county says is going to give folks time to get used to this new mode of operation. And that, I mean,
1: they passed this in the spring. That came at like the 11th hour added this month, right? December. What is the city exemption r- really all about?
3: So the city exemption, you know, ops Cleveland out of the county ban. It gives them a six month period to study their own ways to come up with to come up with their own ways on how to reduce or eliminate the use of single-use plastics in, in the city.
0: So let's talk about the legislators, the people who want to go down in history as having towed the line in the name of plastic. I mean, that's something you really want on your headstone, right? I stood up for the rights of plastic bags. They seem intent on stopping communities like ours from doing right by the environment, which is what the, this is all about. What's the status of that?
3: That legislation made it out of the Ohio House. It has yet to obviously you know, move further than that, but the House did move it through.
0: So the Senate has it next. And, and their argument has been all along, hey, um, w- the grocery stores will be jeopardized by this. We need to protect grocery stores, and we want to give uh, uh, consumer choice. So where do the rights of the communities that want to ban it come into that argument are the legislators having any of
4: that
3: well this would just this would preempt the local communities from being able to implement any of these kinds of bans so it just puts that power it leaves it in
1: columbus so the
0: the environmental argument just carries zero weight in columbus
1: (laughs) In late December, Giant Eagle made the state argument moot. They announced they're getting rid of plastic bags all on their own, right, Mary? Yeah, that's right. Giant Eagle
2: this week, which if you have been in Northeast Ohio, you will see a Giant Eagle everywhere. I mean, they're they're probably the largest grocer in Northeast Ohio, um, at least – you know, in, in my area, but yeah, they are getting rid of single use plastic bags altogether by 2025. And this is a huge deal. Um, this makes the whole argument in Columbus kind of um, irrelevant because this company, which is, you know, a huge grocer here in Northeast Ohio is making the decision on its
1: own. And they're not just bags too. They're saying all single use plastics. So that'll be really interesting to see how it plays out.
0: All right, Mary, keep talking. Why is this a top 10 story of the year?
2: You know, this drumbeat, this debate has dominated the conversation um, this entire year. I think, Courtney, it would probably be the second or third most important story you've covered this year, you know, beyond the corruption stuff and the jail stuff, Um, because people on both sides are really passionate about it. I mean, the environmentalists are saying, look, we've got a problem here. We need to fix it. Um, The other side is saying, you know, it's, you know annoying and you know we don't like you know the idea of people telling us what we can and can't do. So I don't know. I think it's fascinating how plastic bags are very, very
1: polarizing. Yeah. Courtney, I think we could have done a top ten episode just out of county government, but we have to move on to some other issues of statewide importance too. So thanks for all the great work this year. No problem. Bye bye. No episode of this podcast will ever be complete without a visit from Jane Cahoon. Hello, Jane. Hello. So we've gone through four of our top 10 stories of 2019, and you're here to talk about three more. We thought when 2019 started, it might be a little slow, being the year before a presidential election, but not so much, huh?
4: Uh, I need a vacation, you guys.
0: (laughs) Well, abortion has been a perpetual topic in Columbus, it seems. We've had a very deliberate, years-long erosion of the ability of women to get it. abortion with any kind of ease in this state this year though brought the nuclear option after seeing a previous version vetoed by former governor John Kasich the supermajority republicans passed a heartbeat bill that new governor Mike DeWine signed this amounts pretty much to an outright ban on abortion how does it work jane
4: well the way it works is as soon as a fetal heartbeat can be detected the abortion is ban- is outlawed so many Women don't know they're pregnant before that, you know, as early as six weeks.
0: So by the time they know they're pregnant, they're already past the deadline. Correct. So abortion is not an option in the vast majority of the cases. Right.
1: And as happens with just about any abortion law, this one immediately was challenged in the courts. There's a logjam in the courts, though. Republican-controlled states almost seem to be competing to be the one case that the U.S. Supreme Court uses to overturn Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion in the 1970s. So where does our heartbeat bill stand?
4: Well, you're correct. It, it was immediately challenged, and right now it's in the U.S. District Court at, at the district court level, so it hasn't gone that far. It's on hold, though. The law is on hold.
0: This was one of the most conservative steps taken by Mike DeWine during his first year as governor. We've talked previously about how he appears to be a fairly open-minded guy, more so than we expected, considering positions carefully and actually taking some positions that Democrats cheered. But the heartbeat bill was an easy choice for him. His religious beliefs are pretty strong, and he simply wants abortions banned.
4: Right. Uh, all the pieces were in place for this to pass this time. It, it seemed inevitable. As you said, the, the GOP supermajority, Mike DeWine, and this time Ohio Right to Life was on board. They, they were not before because I think they saw it as a loser in the courts. But don't forget now we have two new very conservative U.S. Supreme Court justices, and so that they hope it will get before them.
0: The the, the Check me on this, but the, the opinion of Ohioans when they're polled is more evenly divided than the legislature, right? This is not an overwhelming support. Actually, there might be more people against this than are for it, right?
4: Correct. I think when it comes to the really severe measures like the heartbeat bill, there probably are more people against it. Uh, but I think as a state, we're more evenly divided on the whole abortion issue
0: but because of gerrymandering many people in ohio don't have their voice in the legislature and get this kind of thing rammed down their throats
4: correct
1: so we could argue mary that the heartbeat bill is just one more step in the very long abortion battle we have volleys filed every year in that why do you think this story rose to a top 10 status
2: well as um somebody who follows women's issues um i would say that the Ohio State House for the past year, or past few years. I think there have been four, three, or four attempts to pass the heartbeat bill. But this is the first time that we've really seen legislation go through to the governor and get signed. Kasich would not sign this, DeWine would. And I think the other important thing to note is really this is an outright ban if it goes into effect. It's not six weeks that a woman has to bide her time and make the decision about whether or not she wants an abortion. This is like two or three weeks. Maybe, maybe one week after a woman finds out that she's pregnant, that she has to make this choice. In Ohio, you have to schedule two appointments with an abortion clinic in order to get an abortion. You have to live close enough to an abortion clinic. There are only seven in the state. All of them are in urban areas. So right now there is a huge, you know, already limited access. But if you put this restriction down an an already, you know, very limited situation i i I think it's going to be almost impossible for most women in need of an abortion or who want an abortion um to get that that care
0: okay where to go next guns or drugs i guess i'll take the high road
4: oh boy i should take a pot shot at you for that Uh, terrible pun
0: (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to the guns in a moment let's talk now about weed we had a big moment this year when it went on sale legally in ohio how did that happen
4: Well, this dates back to 2016 when the legislature legalized it under John Kasich. He didn't like it very much. I don't think Mike DeWine likes it very much, but it's been a slow process with uh, a lot of hiccups involved in licensing the growers and the processors and the dispensaries and the doctors who recommend it and patients getting their cards for it, and finally in January, the first dispensaries open for business
1: so this was a long time coming um when how many years do we wait for this to come well to actually come into fruition
4: i mean they legalized it in 2016 okay so and so three, three long years three long years um you know there were efforts before that you could right. go back further
1: So because first proponents were aiming to put something on the ballot to legalize it, then legislators, fearing whatever people would come up with, created their own bill, and the state moved incredibly slow. And though now we've got it, what's happening with it now?
4: Well, you know, this is just medical marijuana. It's not a a full legalization. So we have this program where you have to have one of a number of qualifying conditions and then you can get a card and then you have to go to a doctor who recommends it and so forth. So it's not like neighboring states like Michigan, which just legalized it. Well,
0: let's talk about Recreational. that a bit. Let's talk about Michigan. At the end of 2019, <laughs> Michigan has completely legalized marijuana. People can buy it in stores. No medical need required. And we've been wondering, what does that mean for Ohio? Because we're the neighboring state. Uh, We've suspected that a lot of would-be marijuana users would bristle at buying from such unsavory characters as drug dealers, but might be happy to drive a couple of hours to a neighboring state where they can buy it freely without any danger. Yeah, it's illegal to bring it back to Ohio, but the risk isn't huge. What do we know about this?
4: Well, Chris, we found out just what you described. Laura Hancock traveled to Michigan and uh, started looking for all the Ohio plates in the in the parking lot and so forth. And she talked to some people who, in fact, did say they don't like dealing with shady drug dealers. This is a safe way to buy it. You can also be sure there aren't some bad substances mixed in with it. And um, other people were there kind of for the novelty. And interestingly... Some Ohio medical marijuana patients are going there now, according to the dispensaries. They say a fairly significant portion of their business is people, they honor the medical marijuana cards from Ohio. Uh, She also found that some people talked about marijuana as like marijuana tourism. You know, you, you come there to get your pot and... You know, you go have, have a cup lunch. of coffee, yeah. you go lunch. Yeah, right. So. It,
0: it will be interesting to see whether marijuana use in Ohio rises because of the ease with which people can get it. I, I, you just have to think. There are people that that see marijuana as, as similar to alcohol. They just, the hurdles to getting it have been a problem. And with those hurdles removed, will we see the, the percentage of people in Ohio that use it going up?
4: I don't know. You know, uh, at least one person complained to Laura about the prices in Michigan. So, and that guy said he's not coming back. So Price
1: gouging knows? already. <laughs> so, if all the states on our borders legalize marijuana, do you think the Republicans in our state house will bow to that pressure, either public or business, and legalize it here?
4: Well, just look at the s- sports betting. You know, probably I think four of our neighboring states already moved on that since the Supreme Court authorized it but we are still talking about these bills we, we always seem to be last with everything um, I don't think there's them. I don't think there's a huge appetite for it but you never know
0: Mary what's the thinking here why did you put this one on your list
2: I mean this is like the end of prohibition if you think about it uh, for decades people have been punished severely for possession of marijuana uh, and suddenly, we're seeing sort of this new thinking where marijuana isn't um, being—it's—it's it, it's not a bad thing it's anymore. Kind of like people, helpful rather yeah, than people drug. are viewing this as uh, a, a chance to make a lot of money um, and help people. I mean, the medical. Um, It's clear that marijuana has medicinal qualities and can help people who are really in pain. Um, And also, you know, the states like Michigan, who are fully legalizing it, um, I'm sure are making a a significant dime on, on, you know, the amount of people interested in, in purchasing it. So I think it's a huge deal simply because uh marijuana has been called the gateway drug forever and now we're saying maybe this isn't a gateway drug maybe well it's this a gateway is... to michigan yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's more like a beer kind of <laughs> all
1: right so let's get to the gun discussion we had a mass shooting in dayton in august and for a while elected leaders seemed to say that they would respond with some common sense laws to keep guns out of the hands of people too mentally ill to have them Universal background checks seemed like they might finally be adopted, but as with so many gun tragedy as the news faded So did a will to make changes. Jane, let's start with that ballot initiative that hit a roadblock
4: Well, it's not that there wasn't a will for that and there still is a will for it but the people who were circulating petitions to get this near universal background check issue on the ballot came to the realization that they were going to fall short by this week's filing deadline to get it on for 2020. They now say they're aiming for 2021. They didn't have enough financing. I think they had hoped to get a little more support from Michael Bloomberg's group, but you know he's running for president now. Mm-hmm. So, so he, that, needs, he needs his money. Right, right. <laughs>
0: So Governor Mike DeWine did make good on his promise to do something, largely because people kept chanting at him, do something, (laughs) at public speaking engagements. Uh, He put together a pretty thorough and kind of novel package of moves to curb gun violence. What were some of the highlights of that?
4: Well, first of all, he initially said he supported or he would push for background checks, and he did back off of that because he realized the legislature wouldn't pass it.
5: Yeah,
0: it was pragmatic.
4: But the highlights of his package are a voluntary gun background check program, and uh, they would toughen the penalties for illegal sales, and they would make it easier for the courts to separate people from their guns dangerous people
0: yeah and that court thing is was interesting when they came in here to lay this all out for us you know we're very skeptical right because he said i'll do universal background checks and then he wasn't Uh, but when they sat down with his team and went through it you know instead of creating a red flag law which many second amendment adherents believe would have been abused right because i could just say hey I think Mary shouldn't have a gun. She's crazy and there's really no me- you know the, the right. measures and the metrics on that weren't really there. The the you could have made claims without proving it. With this, you've got to go into court like you do for anything else and pretty much prove that somebody isn't capable of of having a gun or or taking care of themselves or presenting a threat. But they did make some changes to increase the number of conditions that could be that this could be applied to more in keeping with the intent of the red flag law. What were some of those?
4: Well, they added drug and alcohol bu- abuse as a reason. So
0: they- so if, if picking on Mary again, if, <laughs> if I knew that Mary was was getting drunk three nights a week.
4: She's not, guys. She's not. She's a really good person. <laughs> thank you. I could you. go
1: into
0: court and say, "Hey, look, you know, she's she's falling down drunk. She's a danger. She shouldn't have a gun." And the judge, no. you couldn't do that?
4: You couldn't do that. You, she would have to be saying she wants to kill someone or kill herself. Again, not happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,
1: but how does the voluntary background check work?
4: Well, it, if you want to sell your gun to somebody, you'd have to get the buyer into a local sheriff. They would do a background check, and then they would issue what's called a seller's protection certificate that would insulate you from criminal liability. They would, you know, say this person is legally allowed to own a gun.
1: So what if people just ignored it? I mean, it's voluntary. I don't have to do it.
4: Well, you know, they still could be civilly liable. Mm -hmm. Plus, with the tougher penalties for Illegally selling a gun, you know, that's.
0: Yeah, that I mean, is. if you think about that, right, I'm, I'm going to sell my gun to Mary because she's not drinking and doing any bad <laughs> things. Uh, if she doesn't go and get that certificate and I sell the gun to her and then she does bad things with it, I could be sued. I could be held accountable because I didn't require that right. minimum thing. So it's kind
1: of like insurance then. But
0: if Mary goes to the sheriff's office, they check out Mary's background. Says she's an upstanding citizen. She shows me the piece of paper. I feel good because I know I'm putting the gun in the hands of somebody who's safe to have it, and I have protection against right. any possible
4: suits. It, but if but if you don't do that, the the other part of this is that they would change the standard. Right now. Uh, it, you have to recklessly sell somebody a gun to be liable. And uh, now it would be negligence. And now it would be just negligence. But I
0: didn't do some due diligence. Right. Of course, this is all interesting, but there doesn't seem to be any movement anywhere in this legislature on anything having to do with guns, except maybe to make, make them more available. <laughs> uh, is this dead?
4: No, it's not dead, and Governor DeWine has repeatedly said he's very committed to this, and he he does have some clout, but then we've got Larry Householder and the legislature, which is populated by very many gun rights uh, advocates, and as I've said before, I think that maybe they'll come up with something, but I would be surprised if they... They approved everything he's asking for.
0: It's too bad because it's it sounded like good stuff. Sounded like it was workable and sensible.
1: And yeah, reasonable. All right, Mary's turn again. This is basically a story that says nothing is happening, no movement. It's not usually the basis of a top ten news story, but it starts with Dayton. Is the Dayton massacre the reason this hits the top ten news list?
2: Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. In, in August, when uh, you know nine people were killed, seventeen other others wounded in, in Dayton, in a, in a busy area of town. I mean, that broke Ohio's heart and and really uh, galvanized people again to, to do something. You know, we see these mass shootings, it feels like, every few months, and suddenly this was in our own backyard. And I think that any movement um, by the legislature or by the governor um was important to people who felt
1: not just thoughts and prayers yeah
2: who felt so um I, I guess helpless because they felt like you know they nothing was getting done and the fact that a very conservative governor um you know made some concessions about this uh, in the face of a huge tragedy for the state, um, I, I think was meaningful. I, I would, I was surprised that DeWine did anything knowing his, his, uh, feelings on guns.
1: Okay. Jane, I can't wait to see what next year brings with a presidential year. So thanks for joining us for the year end podcast.
4: And I can't wait to my vacation.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Bob Higgs.
4: Hello. Perhaps no story
0: has bigger meaning for the immediate future of Cleveland than the move of Sherwin-Williams, the giant paint and coatings company with 4,000 plus workers in Cleveland, wants a new headquarters and has actually looked beyond the city. Pretty much anyone who is anyone in Cleveland wants them to stay, and they have said they plan to stay, but as the year ends, we still don't have a site for the new headquarters or any certainty that they will stay.
5: What do we know, Bob? Bob? What we know basically is what we hear f- from third-party sources. Sherwin-Williams has been remarkably tight-lipped from, about this. Uh, their an announced intention is to f- do a search for a site, announce that site. By the end of this year or early next year, I think at this point, we're talking about sometime in January at the earliest. Uh, and there's lots of people who are hoping for Cleveland, and we're hoping for that ourselves, expecting that. But there's nothing hard and fast there.
1: I'd expect that a company like Sherwin-Williams, threatening to move, would bring the city, the county, the state, everybody together to form a package of incentives to keep them here. Do we have any word on that? Let's say, for example, Sherwin-Williams wanted to build a shiny new headquarters near Public Square or down by the Cuyahoga River. What would the state, county, and city offer? Would it be as good as that Amazon deal?
5: Not a chance. Okay. (laughs) But I
0: think everybody's really glad that Amazon didn't come here. They regret that package of incentives.
5: Uh, you will see a lot of incentives offered, though, that the, between the city and the county and the state and through Jobs Ohio, there's a lot they can offer, uh, pay, waiving payroll taxes to the company for any new jobs. And that Valspar subsidiary in Minnesota, if they move some of those jobs into Cleveland, assuming they stay here, mm-hmm. they could save on payroll taxes for that, uh, uh Tax uh, abatements on the new construction are possible. Tax increment financing that would help them pay for the financing of the project is likely. Uh, The city can offer all kinds of infrastructure development. Because I figure they're going to have to rework wherever they go. Water, sewer, power grid, all that kind of stuff. Um, But but as the year comes to a close, I don't think that those
0: packages are together. I I mean, you're not getting any sense from the halls of government or from uh, Jobs, Ohio, that they've actually put something together,
5: and I and I don't think it's because it's secret. I don't think they've done it yet. Now, I think that there's been some conversation, but I think you're right that there is nothing nailed down that says here, which this is, is odd a lot of
0: because this is kind. If you outside of the halls of government, if you talk to anybody who's involved in economic development in these areas, this is a bona fide crisis. If they picked up and left, that would be a huge problem for the city. And what makes them so unique? is this is a company that has a long-term viability. There are other companies out there that could be threatened by technological advances or the way their industries evolve, but Sherwin-Williams makes paint. We need paint for our homes. They make them look nice, and companies that make things out of metal need the special coatings to prevent the corrosion. And all of those things wear out over time. So it's Sharon williams is a company that should be here in another hundred years, unlike some other companies that have, have come and gone. When will the public hear that, that the government officials are considering this to be the same kind of crisis that people
5: in the private sector do? Well, I, I think you got two parts to that. One is I think you could probably get them to talk candidly about, yes, this is hugely important. And I've heard that for months. Uh, But that's different from what are you going to offer them. I would expect, though, if... Because
0: other cities would be offering them the moon. Right. To get
5: 4,000 high-paying
0: jobs in those cities where they're getting the income taxes, that's worth something
5: to other cities. What's it worth to us? Well, my my expectation is that behind the scenes they're getting offered the moon to stay here too. Um, but and there I think there's also a feeling though that there is more this is more collaborative than competitive uh there there's big reasons for Sherwin Williams to stay that are some of them are intangible. They look like the heroes the the Cleveland established company that's been here since the nineteenth century that says. We're staying because it's important. I mean, mean, there's some banking on that kind of thing. They're the
1: ones that had the LeBron banner. And when he left, they put up the city banner. I feel like they have a lot of hometown pride. And all of these 4,000 workers, a lot of them have deep ties in the community. And the sense I get is, you're right, collaborative, that they're not trying to play us. I mean, well, that's just right. a sense, right? They and, just they want it to work.
0: And one of the reasons companies do move their headquarters is if they feel their staff is bloated, it's a way of thinning it down because all of the workers don't go with you and you get to cut back. But that's not Sherwin Williams; they're not bloated. They're actually probably uh, understaffed, so they don't they don't get that benefit. It's also in their bylaws, which right. the right. board which you can, can change, change, but but they still that would be a pretty ugly vote. But their own bylaws say they have to be a
5: Cleveland company, right? Uh, I I think, though, behind the scenes, there are people, I'm sure, in the administration, probably in Armand administration who are saying, we'll work with you on this. But yeah, I, don't I don't think know, anything's don't, nailed down
0: yet. I don't think they're. it's as concrete as I really, you think.
1: I really want them to build a skyscraper on Public Square. Wouldn't that be cool, uh, instead of parking lots, to have a new skyscraper in Cleveland? Maybe yeah. that'll be the 2020 top news story.
0: Mary, no-brainer on this one, right? I mean, the Sherwin-Williams' risk of leaving top 10 automatically.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that company means a lot to the city, and uh, you know, we could not not
1: address this controversy. All right. Let's talk about our ninth story. It is big, and it's about very strange things happening in a criminal investigations of Mayor Frank Jens, Jackson's grandson, Frank Q. Jackson. Let's start with the cases. First up, let's talk about the daytime homicide. What happened there, Bob?
5: That happened in August, uh, August 28th. In uh, a guy walks out of a barber shop over in the Stockyards neighborhood on the West Side. Two men in hoodies come up behind him and shoot him and kill him. Speed off. Uh, And the car they left in was identified as belonging to the mayor's grandson. That's the link to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And that prompted a series of events that led police to the house.
0: Right. And that's where the anomalies of this investigation began. So let's go through the anomalies, the two big ones in this investigation. What were they?
5: Uh, You've got Cops showing to the house.
2: The the mayor's
5: house, right? The mayor's house on East 38th Street. Uh, They don't have body camera on. Uh, There there, there were two different groups of cops that come. There's the detectives
0: that don't 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 wear wear body cameras, but there were uniformed cops that were there too. They do have body cameras. Right, and theirs were turned off. And nobody is saying how that came to happen. There's no. there's no police commander that's owned up that he had it turned off, but they don't turn those off. This was anomaly number one. What's the second one?
5: The second one, and, and this this is a big one, um, they wanted to question him, and they also needed to collect some evidence. The mayor said, we'll bring him down for a statement with his lawyer tomorrow. Now, now asking to make a statement with your lawyer is not unusual. But what the police didn't do then was collect the evidence they need, and crucial in that was this hand swab that would have shown if he'd fired a gun recently. And by not doing that that night... That
0: well, but, but you're, you're even getting ahead. The, the Anybody that's paid any attention to the way Cleveland police investigate homicides is they bring everybody in. I mean, if you're even in the vicinity, you're brought in, and they can hold you for three days without charging right. you, and if it's a weekend, they can hold you for five days. If it's a holiday weekend, they can hold you for six without ever charging you with anything. They never don't take you in. They always take him in. They didn't take the grandson in, and by not taking him in, they didn't secure his cell phone, they couldn't swab his hands. The the evidence they might have needed to prove if he was linked to this, to this homicide... Um,
5: You spoke to Frank Jackson about this, and he says he had nothing to do with those decisions, right? Right. He he was very adamant that he had not asked for anyone, nor had anyone in his administration asked for any special treatment here.
0: But he's not addressing the fact that anomalies happened. I mean, even there were members of city council that you spoke to that thought this should be handled by different investigators instead of people— that answer to the mayor. And the commander on the scene that night is somebody Frank Jackson named as commander. Right. So so there is a thought that there is a conflict. Jackson, who's well known for his integrity, he's not the kind of guy that would order people to do things they shouldn't do. But that doesn't mean that the police worried about him wouldn't do it on their own.
5: Well and this is an example of where his sense of personal integrity gets in the way sometimes too because the way he looks at it is the grandson's had problems before we've never brought in outside people before the process worked why wouldn't it work now
1: so let's talk about the other case involving frank q jackson which came out this summer he was accused of beating a woman with a metal truck hitch what happened there
5: that was in june he was uh, police say he was in his pickup truck with this 18-year-old woman. And uh, there's accounts that he struck her in the truck. This was on East 55th Street at a gas station, then pulled into a parking lot uh, for CMHA apartments, pulled her out of the truck, and began hitting her. Uh, And included in this beating was hitting her with his trailer hitch, and then he fled the scene. And, Uh,
0: And the anomaly in this case is that the city prosecutor, who ultimately answers to Jackson, is appointed by Jackson declined to file even a misdemeanor charge with anyone else that charge would have been automatic they had the witness statement they had the police pulling up you had the police themselves see him flee that scene really he should have the prosecutor should have sent this case to the county prosecutor because it's more than a misdemeanor but at the very least a misdemeanor should have been filed yeah
5: and and it's not the 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 woman told police later I don't want to charge him But that's not a prohibition. And they had lots of witnesses who said, here's what I saw. They had an ability to build a case. But still, it sat for more than a month, it sat. And the police saw him flee. I mean, the police officers themselves.
1: But the county ultimately did file a felony charge against him, correct?
0: Which added, adding proof to how unusual the city prosecutor's decision was.
5: They, They filed felony charges of felonious assault abduction and a third one all, all related to this and that they stepped in and filed the charges and said this needs to be addressed is part of what makes the homicide case anomalies look bad too because that time frame uh, all, all of this is coming together about the same time
1: mm-hmm. so mary this one was an easy choice
2: yeah, I mean absolutely, and I do believe it's important to note that um, my coworker Adam Faris, uh, who's on a well-deserved vacation through the end of the year, broke all of this news, um, which I think is important to note. And two, these kinds of anomalies um, involving the mayor's grandson, I, I think, are huge, uh, simply because we don't know if they handled this the proper way. Uh, you know whether or not the mayor knew or didn't know, um, I, think, I think it's huge. Uh, it's, it's clearly some, some pretty big weirdness that, that's associated with these cases um, that, that aren't the norm and, and we have to ask and, and question whether or not uh, the, that he's the mayor's grandsons had anything to do with it.
1: All right, Bob. We are two years away from another mayoral election, so I expect you'll have a newsy year in twenty twenty. Thanks for talking to us about twenty nineteen.
5: Thanks.
0: The tenth story on our list is one that I had a personal hand in, so this is weird, but it does merit a place on this list, I think. Conveniently, Mary, it is your story. Cleveland Rising. Talk for a moment about what that is.
2: Yeah, for two and a half days in November and in October this year. Um hundreds of clevelanders gathered together to imagine a better version of the city in 10 years and this um unusually wasn't just the typical civic leaders business leaders movers and shakers influencers who typically gather together you know as talking heads and um you know exchange the same old ideas these were regular clevelanders whose sometimes their companies paid for them to go do this They, they took time off work um very different um, kinds of people. There were doctors, there were lawyers, there were teachers, people from with all sorts of perspectives gathering together and saying, what can we do to better this city? Uh, and a lot of really interesting ideas emerged. Um, some seem more doable than others, but the fact that people were given a chance to have their thoughts and opinions valued and considered i think was the most um important thing out of the event
0: you know i was like i said at the beginning i was involved in this i was one of the original people that got together to start planning this and then i was involved all the way up until it took place um and there are other efforts going on that are involved smaller groups i was involved with one of those two i'm not now uh, the thinking of Cleveland Rising was we, we need to have a place where the people you just described have their voices heard, have a say. Um, in retrospect, when I look back on it, I, I thought the goals that came out of it, the 27, whatever it was, were were mostly abstract, that there wasn't concrete, that if we had started by saying let's do this exercise with the goal of creating jobs or increasing per capita income or something, that we still would have touched on equity and transportation and education and all the topics that were discussed there, but with a purpose. The other thing that struck me about it was because these were people that had never really had a seat at the table, it, it was pie in the sky thinking that lacked reality. The transportation discussion I thought was fascinating. Right? You know, One arm of that was, we just need to make it free and another arm of it was we need to build more rail lines well neither of those things are realistic there are very serious transportation things that could be realistic but if there had been a transportation expert in the room to to try and bring some sobriety to that discussion like okay the 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 days of putting in new rail lines for for local transit they're they're in the past that's not going to happen the future is much more likely to be self-driving vehicles So, so it was a great moment with all those people you talked about, but what's, what's the tangible result?
2: Uh, you know, (laughs) I don't really know. I mean, it's unclear whether or not a lot of those ideas were, like you said, pie in the sky. I mean, they sounded great. Man, like if Cleveland could be the biggest economic center in America with high speed transit, where All kids get the best education, (laughs) where everybody has a job and has a chance to get the education they want. And free pizza and ice cream every day. It would be fantastic. I think we all agree that it would be fantastic. Um, And Cleveland Rising gave people permission to dream. Mm -hmm. Which was wonderful. Which was wonderful. But did it really come out? Did we come out of this thing with concrete ideas that could really um you know emerge in cleveland maybe a couple maybe well, maybe you know some strings of something that could wide, become something
0: the widespread broadband if you could make i mean i love the the discussion about is there a way to make high-speed broadband free throughout the county whether you create a tax for it or something it was an interesting discussion that hasn't the, been had. the
1: well, other aren't there aren't there groups now like committees that are tasked with coming back in a couple of months and actually having tangible ideas of ways to get it, this done yeah but nobody's being
2: paid to do this this is all volunteerism so i think it's going to be interesting to see how committed those individuals are i mean certainly they were very motivated at the end of that thing um the the convention but the one thing that i will say is we spent the whole we spent like two days dreaming up these ideas and like maybe an hour and a half two hours coming up with ways to like actually put them into effect so i i don't think people had enough time to really outline concrete ideas I think you know it it was more focused on on the dream of it so so yeah I mean I don't know I, I think it's gonna be really interesting to
1: see whether or not these committees continue their work for sure so I wasn't there you guys were both there would you consider it a success
0: yeah I think it's a success just because it gave all those people the chance to dream to participate to start thinking about civics so that when big ideas come uh, that this is the fertile ground for it. But I'm a little bit pessimistic heading into 2020 that all of these disparate economic development groups that are meeting, and there's even more that I didn't know about before. They're all working separately. One of the big ideas, Mary, you heard it was let's get let's get all these things together. And that's a pipe dream because it's not happening. And I don't know that it ever will.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, my takeaway, it was really a fun event to cover. You as a reporter, when you get to get to sit down with a group of people from very differing perspectives and listen to that debate and listen to them exchange ideas. I mean, man, that's, that's a great place to be as a reporter. The fact that it was all put together for you and you didn't have to go out and find those people to get all those, those viewpoints. I mean, that was great. But
1: (laughs) plus there were crafts, right? I mean, I loved that there were skits and there were markers and there were whiteboards.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, usually, you know, we, we have to do the, 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 going out and finding people to talk to us and they were all right there put together. It was great. Um, But, but yeah, I think, I think that the people who attended thought it was a success and they thought it was a success because their thoughts got on the board. You know, they got to, they got in front of people with money. There were grant organizations there. There were movers and shakers. There were the county executive was there for, for part of it. Most of his team was there for part of it. Of course, um, mayor Frank Jackson was absent, which was, notable for sure. Um, but they got their thoughts in front of some pretty powerful people. And I think that's a big deal. Um, right. It doesn't makes... happen every
1: day. Yeah, definitely. Mary, you did a great job putting together this list. Thank you for talking to us about how you chose the stories. And I want to add that we tackled the same challenge for every year of the past 10 years as part of our project celebrating the end of the teen years in Cleveland. What's more, you picked the top news, the top entertainment, the top sports of the decade. I take it your New Year's resolution is to stop making lists
2: actually I, I like can't stop dreaming about making lists like we're having a holiday cookie um challenge at work and i, I had a dream last night that i was making a list of all
1: of the different cookies and like ranking their importance um, okay
0: you need a vacation <laughs>
1: chocolate chip biggest cookie of the year all right we all i hope you have a great new year and we'll see you plenty in 2020
0: All right, Laura, as we always do, we end this with just you and I, and uh, now that we have finished going over what the big stories of uh, 2019 were, and we've been talking at length of what the past decade were, let's look ahead. What do you think the big story will be next year?
1: All right, I'm going to go hugely optimistic here. I'm going to go that Sherwin Williams is going to build a skyscraper on Public Square, fill up those empty parking lots and like add something really cool to the skyline that we're all really proud of.
0: I for me the the story I'll be watching for next year is whether all these economic development teams that are out there plotting the future fizzle. Whether whether this leads to tangible plans we we've often compared cleveland to columbus where everybody is working together largely at the direction of les wexner the business tycoon but they all work together they all have a shared vision and in every conversation that's been had around here the last year and a half the discussion is we need that and so far we don't have it there's not a lot of signs we're going to get it and if we don't get it cleveland will continue to kind of founder and and. If we do get it, we could kind of rock it into the the next decade. So, yeah, I I've thought for sure you would talk about the Great Lakes.
1: Well, you know what are we gonna do? Break more records? No, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure. The, I'll sure I'll have a, a best of the lake story for 2022.
0: Well, thank you for listening to this special 2019 episode of this week in the CLE. Next week, we have another special episode where we look at the top stories of the past ten years as this century's teen years come to a close. This week in the CLE is the podcast discussion of the news by the team at cleveland.com, usually published on
5: Thursdays.